0: Please.
1: Truth Seekers, and Truth Crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise, and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg@funkinstuff.net. at For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm thrilled to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, Doug Wimbush a renowned bass player and composer who has created some of his best-known music with Sugar Hill Records, the band Tackhead, and Living Color. Gifted with the skill and sensibility to traverse a multitude of musical genres, he has excelled in rock, funk, hip-hop, industrial, R&B, fusion, and pop contexts. In addition to releasing adventurous solo works, his contributions have been extended to Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones, Little Steven, Africa Bambada, Melba Moore, Freddie Jackson, Peter Wolf, Billy Idol, Joe Satriani, Madonna, Al Green, Carly Simon, Seal, Annie Lennox, Michael Bolton, and George Clinton. Wow, that's uh, some range. Doug, how are you? Good. How are you doing today? I'm doing excellent. Thank you. Thank you for joining the show.
0: Pleasure to be here.
1: And and where is here? Where are you coming to us from today?
0: I'm in Hartford, Connecticut.
1: And a little bit cold right now. I'm guessing.
0: A little bit. We had a <laughs> nor'easter blow through here last night and today. So it's, uh, it's always fun when it snows and uh, digging the car out, watching the kids play in the snow. It's a good, it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> oh
1: boy. Yeah. Well, I told you I was in, I'm in Charlotte now, but I was, you know, born and raised in LA when I came out here and I saw that white stuff. Mm. Uh, my friends up in the Northeast uh, thought it was funny that I didn't own a snow shovel. So,
0: Ah, <laughs> <laughs> did you borrow one of their shovels?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I have my own now, but yeah, okay. that was uh, a rude awakening for sure. Okay. <laughs> so, but you're from uh, there originally, right?
0: I'm originally from Bloomfield, the next town over. Okay. Bloomfield, Connecticut. Yep.
1: yeah and you got into music when you were a teenager, right? Uh, how did that uh, develop?
0: Um, just, you know, uh, as a young kid, you, you know, I was listening to a lot of music. I have an older brother and sister and I would listen to what they were listening to. Um, eventually I took a, a shining to the guitar And that led to me picking up a bass, and that was around 19, I was about 13 years old when I first started to tinker around with instruments. And uh, once I got a, once I, so I played bass and guitar, you know, pretty much at the same time. Um, But I, you know, I gravitated towards bass, and, because at the way I was able to learn at the time was through different musicians that were in, within my uh, hometown or within the area. So a lot of them were guitar players. So I found it easier to uh, l- take lessons with a guitar player and uh, he would teach me songs. And I, So I'd learn some of the guitar chords and then I would play bass at the same time um then I found that there was a lot of competition with a lot of different guitar players you know at the time so I was friends with pretty much everybody I was just trying to get as much information as possible but that led to me um, really focusing on the bass when I was in high school and by the time I graduated I had um, already kind of started working with uh different people one of which was Jackie McLean's artist collective uh it was an organization that he had there's a lot of musicians there and I was able to take some lessons and I met Skip McDonald there who's uh my mentor and uh, and and we're still working together <laughs> t- t- we're still working with each other today but it was Skip that really helped excel my skill set at the time and the late great Harold Sargent and they took me under their wings and um and then I started playing with some elders so it was just it was a four years from 1970 to 74 was extremely exciting and a lot of things excelled I was in high school you absorbing all the different information of what's going on but then again I was able to uh, hang out with my brother and sisters friends who were older than me and kind of like just pick up those frequencies. And, and um, once you once you get when you're that young, you just it just you, you take it all in. So I was, I was fortunate to, to be around the frequencies and take it all in.
1: So did that foundation of guitar, and also, you know, getting mentored by someone like Skip, um, you know, what did that imbide you with to take it forward? Do you think?
0: well skip mcdonald is just an, an amazing artist but f- first he's just an amazing person and his personality uh is what really uh gave me the made me comfortable to be able to uh take on all the different things that i was seeing at the time because i was quite young and I, when i met skip he was uh, seven years my senior, and um, so I was got involved with a bunch of elders, and uh, Skip was that person that was able to not just translate notes, but frequencies, and to understand how to um, prepare for the different frequencies and notes that you have to endure to be able to move forward in your, Uh, quest for being a musician, but also, you know, as a young adult, I was still growing and developing. So Skip's patience and calm and skill set was, uh, I was just drawn into it. So this is, we're talking 1973, 1973, 1974. And it was very, a lot of things were going on at that time. Beautiful things. But but I, and I met Skip teaching bass at the Artist Collective and lo and behold, he's really a, he's a guitar player, but he's so talented. When I met him, he was just say hey, he just happened to be at the Artist Collective as well and found a found a way to, uh, you know, he was taking saxophone lessons there. And even though he's a guitar player in and and the way for him to play sax and take the lessons for free was to teach. So what do you want to teach? Well, I'll teach bass. So I just happened to meet him at the right time. And that just, that's just the sign of a true champagne. But um, with his guidance and with Harold Sargent's guidance, the drummer, both from Ohio, both elders, it really gave me a, uh, they gave me a, a wealth of, of knowledge of what songs to to listen, what music to listen to, uh, how to hold the foundation down as a bass player when you have all when you have s- s- that responsibility, and you're playing with the these elders that are just amazing musicians. So, um, but again, it was Skip that was that calm, that Yoda, that. Mm-hmm person that was always uh, uh, the, he made the decisions. When everybody else is freaking out, it would be Skip. They would, Skip, what do you think? Well, first, everybody needs to calm down. And then he <laughs> <laughs> yeah, had that kind of vibe. So, uh, you know, um, a uh, true Virgo. And uh, so having a person like that is, is, uh, is everything, you know? Um, he, he, his, they're from, he's from Dayton, Ohio. He grew up with the Ohio players. He grew up around that whole scene. And, um, and I was just fortunate to be able to meet him and Harold and Arthur Stokes, another sa- the saxophone player, and Wood, Brass, and Steel. And um, these Ohio <laughs> natives were able to really help shape my whole frequency. Um, because it's not just about, you know, it's, it's, it's not just about how you play. It's also about how you perform. It's, your, it's where your mind is at. It's how to endure uh, the challenges that come up. And also find, and, and with them, I found myself in uncomfortable situations where I had to really dig deep to figure out how to produce the sounds that were needed quickly without any, you know, you know just like on, on the spot. And that's how you learn. You know, some things you can rehearse, some things it's like, nope, here's what we're gonna do. All right, forget what you just did. This is what we're gonna do right now. You gotta pull it all together and focus. And so Skip was the one that could give me some, extra, some guidance. No, Doug, do this. What about this note? And then also the keyboard player, Hubert Powell, the wood brass and steel nucleus, jazz organ player between the group I had a wealth of information for note selection. So it's, um, but at the hub of it all, skip.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You were fortunate indeed. It sounds like to, uh, you make his acquaintance at that time. Um, who, who were some of your, uh, early bass idols or heroes or influences? I mean, the, the usual suspects or whether some others that we might not think of,
0: Probably some that you might not not think of or know. My my heroes were local bass players that were playing in the area. Um, uh, You know, and and those are always the unsung heroes. It's the ones you you don't know that are the ones that are most influential. At least to me, they were. So the late great Gary Williams, a bassist. That was from the um, from my hometown Bloomfield. Um, another another bass player, Beanie McClooney, He died very young. He's very progressive, very deep into Miles Davis and John Coltrane and Hendrix, and and uh, he had a very diverse palette. Um, so they were my they were my hometown heroes. And then also my family's from the, my mother's from the Bahamas. I would go there, spend summer vacations in Nassau and the bands that were down there were just like I mean they played all the time you know they're playing you know, they're probably still playing right now but down there it was a different frequency because you're you're you're. I'm also in taking in the the calypso frequencies and the junk canoe frequencies of what's going on from from uh from the Bahamas and watching musicians reenact records and songs that sound just like the record. So you check out these bands and they're and they're so used to playing to be, basically becoming a live jukebox, You know, just having a you know, knowing hundreds of songs and knowing songs from an English catalog as well as a uh, native. Hamian catalog as well as a, an american catalog so it was very it was a diverse vibe and the guys could play their you play their butts off great guitar players great uh great musicians and also the first disco hi-hat i ever heard was in the bahamas playing you know a lot of the uh junk canoe and calypso vibes so bass players great bass players down there the uh the beginning of the end funky nassau is one of the bands that was that they were legends there the munnings and stuff and so and also al coley bassist that actually ended up starting uh compass point with, with chris blackwell uh in the bahamas a recording studio so it was all these different heroes that were local that i would see And um, but then back to the root of it, um, when I was coming up, there would, uh, you know, our hero was somebody like Jermaine Jackson, because he's in the Jackson five, you know, and and. uh, uh, And but but more rooted to like folks that I was listening to was Larry Graham, Sly and the Family Stone. in the gang, Robert Cool Bell, the bassists that were with Carlos Santana at the time. Um, and also, uh, you know, obviously Billy Cox. Um, Bootsy Collins, all of, all of James Brown's bass players, obviously the king of them all, James Jamerson. So, uh, and then, you know, my, my, I I was listening to a lot of jazz at the time, you know, the impulse, uh, label was out. So my brother had all the records and You know i'm you know listening to miles and Pharrell saunders john coltrane chico hamilton um the fanny all-stars so again it was like this take it all in kind of vibe but then also was the reggae artist family man uh bob marley's bassist uh you know and but and then i had the opportunity to actually meet jocko when i was young um that was a that was a real, real beautiful thing. So, um, I, you know, Stanley, Jaco, um, Bootsy, um, John and Twistle, you know, I like bass players that were like, what's that? What's that sound? Why, why did, you know, you could hear the notes that they played and you could identify the, the, the person by the frequencies. And you know, uh, oh, that's Stanley Clark. Oh, that's Jaco Pastorius. So that's Bootsy, uh, Larry, and uh, you—you know—a uh, note would be yeah. one name, a first name. So, yeah, I was a kid. I took everything in. You know, uh, Paul Jackson, great bass player. But also, uh, uh, listening to—and I got to give it up—Chuck uh, Rainey. You know, stunningly great bass player. Um, and I grew up in, the I think, was that kind of golden era, 60s and 70s, where it was a lot of um, great rock players, funk players, blues players, you know, Willie Dixon, jazz players. And so I was, it was just like that. It's just FM radio and stereo was where my head was buried between the speakers. But
1: yeah. And um, Parliament Funkadelic played some influence too, right? In that uh, hmm. early, those early recordings you did, correct?
0: Oh yeah, you know um, when I, when I first heard that first funkadelic record in nineteen seventy, "Mommy, what's a funkadelic?" It was, you know, I was, uh, you know, I was a freshman in high school. That was like nineteen seventy when that came out, and it came out right after Jimmy passed. So that was the, it was, it was like. Uh, Losing Jimmy was a big thing for a, lot of, for a lot of folks. And as a kid, you know, it was really, you know, I was, I was a huge Hendrix. I still am a huge Hendrix fan. So when Jimmy passed and then George released the first Funkadelic record, that was like, oh, okay, there's some freaky stuff going on here. There's a lot of cussing going on the record, so I couldn't play this, the records too loud in my house, so my parents would, you know, what's that noise? and All that cussing going on. But uh, yes, um, that was an an awakening for me because George came with it was like the news with a beat. He's kind of giving you all this information, but the band, Eddie Hazel, Billy Bass Nelson, Bernie Warrell, Tiki Fullwood, um, uh, Tall Ross, uh, you know, wow. You know, and when I was listening to that first album, it must have just been on heavy rotation. You know, it was just like, wow, this is, I want to play that. It just was, it had all the elements because it had, you you heard some of Jimmy in there, it had the funk, it had the rock element. It was groovy, it was freaky, it was psychedelic and um and it was in at the same time you know it was very challenging at that time because as a you know uh you know uh the 70s it, you know soul was powerful at that time and funk was, was was on was was there you know but people weren't really black folk wasn't necessarily accepting black bands playing like uh george clinton playing some of that or Jim even Jimmy so to say so it was a it was a bit of a of a of a, of a kind of awakening in a sense you know for some and but and but George really really brought it home in my opinion what he did with that first record was was open up the minds a lot you know a lot of folks went hip to it somewhere and then boom as the um, uh, you know, as America eats its young or some of the, and then Funkadelic starts to come out and now we're in 1974, he had found a way, George had found that right label, right support, right groove, right way to start, you know, dispersing uh, the art, different artists to produce the sound that he wanted. So George just knocked it out the box. And uh, so he's a huge influence. Um, yeah. Yeah, he was a huge, and still is. Still is a huge influence.
1: Yeah, and it must you know? You've named so many great, great talents, and you ended up you know you were a fan, and then you you ended up playing with, and certainly meeting so many of the people that you mentioned later on. That must have been an incredible thrill.
0: It's you know it's music is, it's amazing. You can really if you if you just believe, but if you, but the key is. You stay humble and, tr- and um, don't get tangled up by the musical police officers. In other words, if you like music, you like it. And as I see that, mommy what's a Funkadelic album cover on your wall and the Ohio players and also other, you know, other bands in the background. It's like, those are classic bands that were all connected. It's that, it's that Ohio vibe. You know what I mean? A lot of stuff's come, that that groove comes, a lot of grooves come out of Ohio. James Brown, his label was out of Cincinnati, the players, you know, um, I can go on and on, you know, but I, as you got, as I got older and hooking up with, again back to skip and wood, brass and steel guys, it was their hard work that they did to, you know, playing in Small's Paradise, you know, in New York City, doing the Chitlin' Circuit, um, hitting the road, being on, being out with the Commodores, playing at the same clubs, you know, uh, and 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 me being a young kid, hearing the stories, and kind of like imagining what that was like, and then you know, this band comes to town, and you know, Harold Sargent, the drummer, is like, oh well. Bootsy's coming to town. Well, I know Catfish. Him mean, Catfish and, and Harold were good friends, so I'm, let's go hang out with them. And so said, I was like a little kid, you know, oh, the Ohio players are coming to town. Well, Stokes knows Satch. They're really tight. And Skip knows Junior or whatever. Let's go hang out with them. And those hangs would be hangs. It would take days to recover. It would be, you know, it'd be a proper hang, you know. And uh, But all that being said, it's a part of the scene and i was again i was not the architect i was the recipient of again all that hard work that my elders did and then as the table started to shift a little bit because as i was a youngster and playing and listening to all the funk that was coming up at that time and then the you know the funk started to really get the base really started to come into your face, you know. Larry Graham's putting out his solo pr- product, Graham Central Station. So I got to meet Larry, and then, um, then obviously Bootsy, and got to meet Bootsy, and and, um, and those are two heroes, right? They are just Bootsy and Larry, right there. Take up that's you can go back ten years of all the funk that they did. Larry with Sly and Bootsy with with George, I mean, with with James. So. Each moment was a uh, experience, a life-changing experience. Um, and it was happening quick, you know? And, and so I was fortunate to be around the elders. And then early on, I went to, I met Sylvia Robinson.
1: That was, that's a,
0: that's a whole other <laughs> quadrant.
1: Who, who, uh, who did that introduction? Was it Harold? It was Harold. Yeah yeah
0: harold and joe robinson had met at the blue morocco you know which was a club that joe owned in the bronx and um yeah so and you know like um i met sylvia in 1974. we went down and met them well they had already known them and look we got we got a band together trying to shop around and seeing if we could get somebody to Signed the band and we had a few demos done. And Skip and Harold and Stokes had already um, did some work with George Kerr at All Platinum and Sylvia Robinson. And um, now I'm in the band and H- Hubert Powell's with us, keyboard player. And and we, you know, um, let's re let's see if we can get a record deal somewhere. And next thing you know, we're in New York City. 1650 Broadway, trying to see Johnny Brantley, an old, hot, you know, legendary uh, producer. And, uh, and then it's like, well, let's go see Joe. Next thing you know, boom, I'm over in 96 West Street in Englewood, New Jersey. And, uh, and the rest is history. That was like
1: 1974. F- funny I- side note is I, I bought the uh, Pillow Talk single as a kid, Sylvia. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow i don't think my parents knew what was going on with that one but
0: didn't know what was going on (laughs) you know it's an amazing person joe and sylvia what they did as black entrepreneurs and and obviously with the challenges of being an independent record label and i look back and, and and you know it's like you know they they did their thing and um and it was what I did at all platinum that turned into Sugar Hill that became a part of my legacy.
1: Did, did did you at what point did you say, hey, this rap thing maybe is more than a fad? You know, it's kind of like it
0: it okay. There's a there's a, a herd a mute, there's a herd frequency that goes on when you're with a band, you know? And you know, a lot of a lot of bands tend to have their, oh well, uh, we're a funk band and we like this and we don't like that, blah 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 blah. When because when I heard Rappers Delight and that came out, I was like, oh, this is this is going to change everything. It didn't it didn't scare me. I wasn't like uh, on a oh this is a one hit wonder vibe. No, because it had been bubbling around for a few years before. It wasn't, you know, it, 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 rap had been been out since 1973, 74, really. And I have been, you know, but it, but this is the first time I really came in contact with it because of Sylvia and properly. Um, but I, you know, it didn't take long to see the result of a hit. And when we were, you know, Skip and I were there with all platinum and there was when, you know, uh, there were hits that took place with the moments. Okay, there was some, you know, Sylvia, you know, uh, Shame, Shame, Shame was a hit that they had, you know, that was obviously pretty big prior. But we were there when Rapper's Delight blew up. And I could still see Joe Robinson's face smiling, (laughs) you know, and and Sylvia going, Doug, this is going to, you know, this is going to. They'll be writing. They'll be writing in the history books about what's going on with with this with this record. She said she was. She nailed it. She was like a prophet. She knew. So when you're in that zone and you're seeing things, and back to the band, and some guys in the band might be, well, this is, you know, this will probably last about a couple of months, maybe, and it'd be gone. It's going to be a fad. It didn't appear that way to me because it caught fire. And when something, when something catches fire like that. It puts people in check and that was the beauty that was the beauty of it all because there's the naysayers and um and the naysayers are coming to us because skip keith and i were the ones that were you know we're on the we were on the front line (laughs) we were the first ones the first band to play to back up you know a massive the what the first massive rap hit ever and take it across the world so our friends were like oh what's up man what's up with this rap stuff now well, you guys are too good to be playing that music aren't you i know you, you don't think you're going to be able to do this for a while so we took we took heat and um but also but we were eating you know and we and, and that music took us and that record took us all over the world and took us to open up for george clinton on on the on the knee deep tour but the point is it's like what did i think i i knew at that point That this wasn't going to go away, Um, and it wasn't, and I, and and it, it wasn't something that I was, that I critique, where you know, because if I started to critique the record, I could go, well, you know, doesn't sound like blah 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 blah, and this and that and the other. It doesn't matter a hit, a record that's proper. Doesn't matter what it sounds like. It's period when it connects it connects and that record is just changed everything it just changed the whole thing. i mean look at the world
1: now <laughs> it changed everything yeah it changed the whole world incredible global yeah it, to 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 set the record straight for all the viewers so uh you played on the mess uh, the message white lines uh, apache and funk you up right correct We
0: played for for clarity, okay? Uh, When the backstory is when Rapper's Delight was to be recorded, Sylvia had called my house, my mom's house, looking for Skip and I. Um, We had did, to back it up a little bit, Wood Brass has still released a second record called Hard and Heavy. That kind, that album came out like was didn't come out. It kind of got caught up in the crossfire of uh, the the um, all platinum label going through some difficulties. At that point, um, when they had called my mom's house, some of my elders were like, "Don't don't bother to take the call. We're st- we we're still pissed off from the fact of how the how we were treated from a record that was a good album that never came out. So you know, people were a little disappointed." So, uh, you know, so then next thing you know, I, you know I'm at a, we're at a, a place called um, Leo's Welfare Disco in New Haven, Connecticut. And I hear Rapper's Delight come on. And I heard four bars and I'm with Keith and I'm like, that's an all platinum record. Cause I could tell by the sound of the studio, you know, Motown sounds like Motown's and stacks. And so, that's an all platinum record because I spent five years recording in that studio. Um, and then Sylvia called my house again and my, you know, and I, Keith, Keith, Keith was really encouraged. was really encouraged to, to, um, he was really kind of like, Hey man, you know, call her back. Let's go down there. Let's go to the studio. See, Keith had had, uh, that was some, he hadn't really been to the recording studio before. So he was really gun ho. And, uh, so I called Sylvia back and then Sylvia was like, Doug, I got something hotter than hotcakes. I've been trying to find you. And you gotta come down. Can you come down right now? It was like Friday, Saturday night or something. So no, we you know, we'll come down. So we ended up going down. And um the same day we ended up recording with the Sugar Hill Gang. It was like, you know, right in the studio. And um this happened like super fast. So I did not play bass on Rappers Delight. People th- mentioned that, and um, and just you know, just tell the truth. Now there's a it's questionable who did because story has it that chip Sharon played bass on it. Then I talked to folks from positive force. And they told me that their bass player played on it. I don't know. But I do know I didn't play bass on that record uh, set the record straight. But I played bass on every other every other song at sugar, all of them.
1: So on tracks like uh, white lines and things like that. I mean, did you work out those parts yourself? Or were they written for you? Or what?
0: No, all, most of every song we did, primarily except for some of the ones that the band bought in that were original, there were covers of other songs. White Lines is a, is a liquid, liquid groove, Caravan. So, um, but what would happen is while we were in the studio, Jig, Jigs Chase, the arranger, would um, arrange the, the, a song, you know, and kind of like, you know, and what would happen is, uh, most of the arrangements and think, well, he would write out the bass part, write out Dr- Keith's drum patterns, and then I was given the freedom to kind of embellish what was happening. So, a song like White Lines is a perfect example. Um, main bass line is at, as is, like the main record, just kind of, you know, Reggie Griffith put that together, and I, um, I just played the bass line, added a little a little flavor to it but not you know just you know just I'm I'm playing I'm playing what I you know I'm playing the song but adding a you know just a little different um, maybe a different kind of rhythm to it not much just a little twist but then when it came to the bridge there would be little there would be riffs that I would throw into the bridge just licks Natural licks, you know, you're playing and you start doing a few different things. And it became kind of like a thing for the arrangers to listen to some of the bass licks that I did and arrange horn parts to it. Or arrange, so, uh, arrange a certain other kind of like, um, you know, just embellish what I'm doing and write something around, uh, around that. So, and that's what took place with White Lines. It was a couple of licks that I did. And on uh, some of the versions, because there's different versions of these songs, like seven inch and the twelve inch, and you might see two or three different versions. So on some, you might discover some that have like a, you know, you'll hear the, the horns playing a, a a bass run that I do or something like that, and you'll hear that on other songs, uh, sequence and um, uh, West Street Mob, Sugar Hill Gang, a lot of songs, you know, that became a thing. So, um, but parts were written out. Jigs Chase was the arranger. A lot of times it would be the drum part, bass line, just the theme of it and, and uh, Skip's guitar part. Keith and I would go down first. A lot of times we would play together, Skip, Keith and I, to get the drums down. And then when the drums are recorded, uh, I put the bass down again and, uh, and then skip. So there, was a, so there was a system. And mind you, I'm five years in at all platinum recording with Skip and Woodbrass and Steel and also in session musician backing up um, Etta James, Solomon Burke, Chuck Jackson, Sylvia, Brother to Brother, The Moments, and other artists like that. Um, so by the time Sugar Hill came around, I was already, I had a, I had a, you know, I mean, that's what I did. I was playing live, but I was playing in the studio from quite young. So I kind of had a, you know, knew how to, the, the shape of the notes, in a sense, and also how to relax when you're playing and also be freaking aggressive, you know. Uh, you know, be be what's needed for the job. You know, if I got to be on the front burner, I'm on the front burner. If you need me to be on the back burner, I'll stay on the back burner and just burn, you know, and sizzle a little bit. So, recording is a whole different vibe. Uh, Keith, Skip, and I were able. Keith and Skip were able to usher Keith in. Skip and I were able to give Keith a, a sensibility of. The, of, of of the recording techniques, but, but Keith was a natural. He just, Keith has, was so steady and listened and didn't want to fail kind of like attitude. Gotta remember when you're in the studio, there's always two or three people ready to take your job. They're waiting. And a lot of times you just talk yourself out of it. You know, it's just kind of like, you get to these things you might say where the producer's like, I don't want to be around that person, you know, or whatever. So you have to find ways how to sometimes just, you know, the invisible, <laughs> but you know, but also when it's time to play, play Keith was that person that always uh, adapted very quite quickly, very steady, and uh and locked right in with Keith with Skip and I. So, um, it didn't take long, it just took a couple of recordings, and it was like, oh, so uh, yeah, we did a lot of we did a lot of songs started out, you know, and I look back, and it's like. It's so a lot of recordings that we did at Sugar Hill, um, a lot of classic songs. Jigs did a, sure. yeah. did a great job, the we band yeah. did a great job. We were helping to write those songs. We were the unsung heroes that was adding music to these songs and adding different parts and also arranging as well, to be honest.
1: Yeah, I think subsequently, you know, in recent years, you guys have been getting your due for all that great work and it's high time. Um, but you touched on it, Doug, the chemistry between you and Skip and Keith and, you know, that carried forward to, you know, Tackhead and other projects and still thrives to this day. You know, well, you talked about the connection you had with Skip, but as, you know, the three of you, what do you think it is that makes you guys just coalesce and, and click like you do?
0: Well, you know, when you're, when you're playing live right and you're living with each other you're around each other all the time the it's like a it's like a, any sports team the more you play the more you rehearse the more you practice you, you get good you understand everybody's move you help each other you know do the best you can to, to play better but the root of it really again is is skip because Skip was able to set that, with, to open the frequency up. He was always kind of laying the groove in and gave me the frequency to, to do what I wanted to do and never was like, no, 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 or he's not the kind of person that was, was like that unless it was needed, unless, he, unless something was going. He would go, no, that's not right. That's inharmonically wrong. Try this. And then calmly. So the fact that we were, when we, we, when we met Keith, we only met keith a month before maybe before uh we went to all platinum i mean to sugar hill we met keith in the, like july of 1979 and we were at sugar hill in september so we just we met keith and did some rehearsals did a couple of shows and then it was just like boom so when we went and that boom happened we went to sugar hill and from that point it was non-stop it was recording on the road for a couple of years straight it was nonstop. So when we weren't on the road, we're in the studio. And when we're not in the studio, we're together writing our own material. So we didn't, be, we didn't get lazy and we were driven to continue to do our job, play the music, but also we had something to say as well. And we didn't get, we just kept, you know, we didn't get tangled up in, in, the, uh, in certain things. And also success. Success was what is success? Success is kind of like understanding and being at peace with what you have. And what we had was love for each other. And that's priceless. And, and, and at the same time, we weren't hit off. We didn't have a hit for the band or anything like that. We weren't there was a lot of things that took place where we, gave, we sacrificed things that we did for other folks who were taken advantage of certain things, but we, stayed, but we managed to, to survive those things. And how do we deal with it? By, making, by continuing to make music, by continuing to, 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 have, to play the best we could. So whatever anybody heard us, they were like, I, want, I, like, the, I like what I'm hearing. And and eventually maybe that led to hey, would you guys like to be a part of working with me on as a producer or with this artist or whatever? So we would we just stayed humble. We stayed humble. And what that did was it brought people to us. And we didn't push people away. So um, but we also had to answer, hey man, you know, damn, I heard I heard all these records you're on, man. You must you guys must be making a lot of money doing this. I know that's your groove, Skip, or Doug, or whatever. Things, you know, look, the record business is what it is. But what we did, we took that energy and downtime, you know, we're writing material for our for our own stuff. And we never stopped. Never.
1: And it paid off. Um, did Did you feel, Doug, like you were sort of leading a little bit of a, a dual musical life in that, you know, you're doing real cutting edge experimental stuff with like Adrian and, and Tackhead and that kind of thing. And then you were doing the other you know, studio jobs with other more mainstream type performers?
0: Well, that, that came, that, you know, there was these different kind of like periods. It's kind of like there's, for me and Skip, it's the all platinum period. I got to break it down like this. And there was that struggle of dealing with that. But then again, we, Wood, Brass and Steel came out of that. Was it a struggle? No, it was the beauty of us to be able to release this music with all platinum that is still great to this day. Um, so there's that five-year period. Then there's the Sugar Hill period, which was which gave us a way to see the world, backing up the Sugar Hill gang, but also being in the studio with the Funky 4 Plus 1 sequence, Crash Crew, Treacherous 3, Spoonie G, uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five and doing all of those and also with Sylvia Robinson and Candy Staten and other artists that were on the peripheral. so there was that that ga- they that gave us a sense of it just you know just nonstop live recor- uh, live and recording by the time we got to all to Adrian there was the passage at Tommy Boy Records the record the recording that we did with Africa Bambot and James Brown there's the recording we did with the four SMDs. now we're away from all platinum and we're in a we're in a sort of producer writer actually getting credit for certain songs vibe and then that led us into uh, into Adrian Sherwood by the time we got to Adrian we were it was a it was like this this collision of these the, this, uh, the, the, this, this rhythm section with this dub um, uh, 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 mixer with Mark Stewart on the peripheral checking everything out from Mark Stewart, you know, from the, from the pop group. This English-American f- uh, f- kind of like funk-punk collision that was going on. So by the time we got to, to London, it was like, that was success to us. Everything was successful. But from the time we got in London, we were in a studio recording our own stuff. Adrian has his own label. All these things are lined up. Every st- everything is still underground, but it's freedom. So hit, when we hit, when we, when we hit um, <laughs> Heathrow, it was, you know, our first d- recordings with Adrian, it was like, oh no, this is, this, is what, this is what the struggle was all about. This is what it was all about, to get here. be able to be in an environment that's free and people you can experiment and do things couldn't do that in america america's a little bit different i understand why jimmy went to england because of the it's just a different setup there so especially in the
1: 80s at that time
0: yeah you know but it was it was you know you could you could really get some things done and and we did so it was it was like 10 years of of hard labor, you know in you know in different, in different lanes, you <laughs> know what I mean, it's kind of like here were in Sing sing, you know kind of like Riker's Island, <laughs> hard labor but it but it was it and, and I don't mean to 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 be negative of anything we did we did some great great stuff, but we need but all those things we did we if, if we we that was our that was our basic training in the ghetto. All that stuff that we did for those ten years, all flat with Sugar Hill, was the dude. It, we were ninjas by the time Keith Skip and I were friggin', you know, Navy SEALs by the time we went to to uh, England. I mean, we were, you know, we were cutting with everything. So now we got that happening, and we also got all the stuff that was starting. To, you know, we go to England. And then all of our, we were like, oh, oh, you guys, hey, come to New York City. Little Steve and Arthur Baker start recording with all these other artists <laughs> over in New York that we didn't record with before. And I think that was really the Sun City Project that broke us out. But 84 was an explosion for us, 1984. That was a major explosion. And from that point forward is when a sense of independence really kicked in for Keith Skip and I, in my opinion. Cause you know, we start our own label. Everybody's doing their own thing. I'm working with Jeff Beck. Keith's working with ABC and and, uh, and ministry and and doing um, Trent Reznor's first record, Pretty Hate Michelle with TVT. And Skip Stewart working with Peter Wolf and this one and that one. So we were just um, expanding, but all but you know, always together. And then Tackhead was formed and. Fats comments. So we had all these different things that were just kind of like, at, you know, that were that we could actually do, without having anybody say no, and and put a wrinkle in it. The only pe- people that could that can make stuff happen was us getting in our own way. The end. That was it.
1: When you, when you guys were throwing everything against the wall, you know, was there anything that was off limits, or you were just like, hey, we'll try anything?
0: You know, it's like nothing really is off limits you know what we fo- we found a way to watch body language there's things that adrian liked there's things that he didn't like um there's things we like that, that 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 may you know that you know or we didn't like that maybe you know he he didn't like us so there was there was this there was this way mean to be able to to, to read each other. But the only way you could do that was you record something and listen back to it. <laughs> and then you just, it either, either it works or it doesn't. But it wasn't talked down. It was like, okay, here's an idea. We'll try it out. Do it. Go ahead, Keith. Put the, get the drum machine up. Adrian, do whatever you want to do. I'll play on top of it. it wasn't, there was no form. It was all like free. And, and we found a way how to conform to... To, to, uh, to, to get this music out. And it was, it was, uh, it was, it was, it's beautiful because to this day, we still have that special connection when, with the Adrian, Skip Keith, myself and Bernard. Uh, and Bernard. You know, it is a special frequency that, that Tackhead has when we're, when we're together. Then there's this frequency when it's Skip Keith and I and Mark Stewart, it's another vibe. Mark Stewart and the mafia, a whole different kind of, so, similar but different. And um, but so, yeah, we throw stuff out there and just see what sticks, but didn't really care because at the end of the day, if something didn't stick, you know, Adrian could mash it up and put so much compression on it and 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 edit it up. You wouldn't even know it was like, well, I'll just use it for noise. Don't worry, it may not be a record, but I'll take this and I'll use this part just for just for the noise. We'll edit that in next song, you know, so it was kind of like that.
1: There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkenslift.net. Thank you very much.